Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Guys, everyone here at Fieldcraft loves Black Rifle Coffee. Director of Marketing, Rob Parsons, he's a Black Rifle Coffee guy. He won't admit it, but he is. Don't let him tell you otherwise. Guys, Black Rifle Coffee, lots of really good brews. Beyond Black, Just Black, Silence for Smooth, you name it. We drink a lot of Black Rifle Coffee over here. I'll tell you, it doesn't matter if you get it in the whole bean or the ground bean or the Black Rifle Coffee instant coffee, which that's my favorite for traveling. If you look at my my day pack, I come to work with every single day I travel with. I mean, if you see me at, at an event, ask me, hey, can I try some? And maybe I'll do like the extreme version of Black Rifle Coffee where I just simply pour it into your mouth, followed by some hot water and then shake your head. It's some damn good stuff. So we drink a lot of Black Rifle Coffee over here. They're our number one sponsor. They're good friends. They're located right over in Salt Lake City. They're constantly, constantly on the cutting edge of a lot of entertaining content, educational content. They even hired me as a writer. So, hey, they're doing something right if they got me writing for Coffee or Die magazine and Free Range American. They're just doing good stuff. So we're going to get down to this podcast. Guys, please visit Black Rifle Coffee when you get a chance. Website is www.blackriflecoffee.com, www.blackriflecoffee.com. Check them out. Let's get down to this podcast. Here we go. Do you do the intro? Do I do an intro? Yeah. Oh, I don't do that when the people are there. That would be super awkward. You mean like the introduction to the episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have to introduce you. You might, you're, you're creeping yeah. up on like the second most recurring guest. Dudley Who's, Stone. Is Dudley, Dudley Stone number of one? Of course he is. I can't get him to answer my DMs, John. Really? Oh, I've, I messaged him about getting tuned up with a bow because I have his, I shoot his bow. How about I just connect you guys on a text thread? That would be great. <laughs> I know, but he's like everybody else in the space, man. It's like, I can't imagine being the guys like Rogan, like, like even like you. I'm surprised we even have the ability to text back and forth because we're so fucking busy. But you uh, are in my small circle. I am not very busy. I'm glad to see, yeah, you're in my small circle too. Like there's the... On the phone settings, I mean, for those of you who are using iPhones, because it is yeah. 20, let me carry the one, 2022. Oh. For those of you who are not using antiquated 1970s Android technology in the iPhone, um, you know, you have the little select group that will blast through like your silence phone alerts and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I have like five people in there. You're in there. Really? You could sure. do that? Yeah. That's a thing. It's a thing. You can put them in like, uh, it's your favorites contacts and it'll blast through like silence notifications. Oh. Not on text messages, but if people call... It'll go straight through. Wait, so if somebody, if I see something that says, like, this person's on silent... That just that... means they have it turned off for the night. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that means they don't want to get um, disturbed. I don't even know how to do that. I need to do that. Are you serious? I have 10,000 unanswered text messages. A lot of people who are offended because I just don't have time in a day to get to all the messages. Well, I'm glad you get back to me then. I do, always. <laughs> <laughs> There's only a few people where I'm like, all right, if they're hitting me up, it's something that's significant. There's no. usually a time gap, but it's the same for me. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not as busy as you might think. I, uh, like we were talking about last night at the event, I am an accidental uh, entrepreneur. Dude, that is, <laughs> I, I talked, we talked about this, and this is something I, I will keep pressing until I'm not writing we're elderly. It's about a book right. No. Like, dude, you should, if you could find the philanthropic, donate all the proceeds to the Navy SEAL Foundation. You could do that. So that's that's the tail end of the rainbow. In between the beginning and that pot of gold that would go to somebody else would require me to write a book. And you're glossing over that. But you could talk like I'm not. Like let me not pretend like many people do that I'm writing a book. I'm not a Jack Carr. Yeah. He's the one. He's one of. He is. He's literally, a legitimate author. He is dude, sitting he there is, smashing keys. Oh my! He is. 
like the fact that his words can, because I don't read his book, I listen to the, the audio version yeah. of it, but the fact that that can translate into a, a great story, I, I could do that in small segments on an Instagram post, but I can't do it long form. I can't hold my thoughts and, and grasp together for an extended period of time. So when you talk, it's engaging. There's a, there's a right writer that can articulate that message, just like your leadership thing from yesterday. I've never, I, I get the best feedback from your leadership engagement that I haven't personally heard intentionally. Yeah, you never go through it, which well, is Well, it's intentionally, because yeah. I, I like the, the snapshots of it. I don't want to be biased to uh, the, even the way I communicate. I don't want to say something that you say yeah. and then have the, the, the client or a customer say, oh, wait, they're saying the same thing. The very first time we did this, what was it, last year, mm -hmm. when you came out, and I figured that's what you were doing, because I watched as you, as you teed me up to speak for, I think it was an hour and a half or two hours, and then you left, I figured that's what you were doing, and then yeah. when you came back in, the similarities and the overlap was 80th, 90th percentile. Yeah, without which, even... Without even, and, and again, it speaks to the fact that I think the special operations community is defined by its similarities, not its differences. Yeah. But on the accidental entrepreneur, entrepreneur. front, um, I have more time than you guys. Like, Jack is probably right now has an ivory-handled pipe in his mouth and is just smashing keys. Like, writing yeah. book number seven that you and I both discovered is going to benefit somebody else. <laughs> That's mind-boggling. I didn't know that. and yeah. But I also, the thing he kept saying over and over again, and not to get in too much into his weeds, but when you come to the negotiating table and you don't have much, that's what's gonna happen in that world. Which makes sense to me, Yeah. but it sucks that that's your token to get to the table and to build upon because, fuck, he's good, man. So good. But he's got a team of people. Yeah. Right? You are running an actual business with a team of people and multiple courses. I hit record on a microphone and turn like video cameras on Yeah. and, and chat back and forth and largely make fun of people and myself and then sell a few products online around the podcast and do some speaking and then spend the rest of my time doing jujitsu. Are you happy? Are you so it's like are you I'm, happy with that? Am I happy with that? I mean do, like I am envious of that position, but I also understand how demanding that could be at scale to an extent. But you seem to strike a great balance in that where you found like a good balance between life and work and the meshing of the two to financially be independent. Not, not be beholden to anybody. And that seems like a very great position to be in. If it's where you wanna be. So for me, what I do, like what you're doing right now, your business, you could if you wanted to scale it beyond you. And I suspect having never talked with you about this, that at some point you may not be the face of Fieldcraft Survival because yeah. it'll be a company that can go beyond what you do. The things that I do, actually I can't do that. Right? Like I'm not going to be able to turn a podcast that I have created and hosted for coming on five years now. Let's say I go five years into the future. Can you think of an example of a podcast that brought in a completely new person and it lived on as to what it was? No. Because I can't. So, it so for scale, for me, the audience size could grow, which would probably translate into other uh, like soft goods sales to come like hats and t-shirts and stuff like that, which could become a scale problem, which is solvable by hiring part-time employees though. So for me, it's kind of, I'm limited in that aspect where I can't grow it to the size that you can. Mm. But I also don't know if I would want to. I have great yeah. flexibility in my schedule. I 
schedule podcasts on the days that I want to, um, and I do it like 30 minutes after I finish doing jujitsu. So I walk down the alley after getting an awesome workout in, throw on my little podcaster hat, sit down, have a conversation. Um, the only thing I don't do personally is actually edit it. And then the biggest step I think I'm making probably to scale something beyond me is the coffee shop in Kalispell. That'll be the first thing where I actually don't want to be the face of that at all. I just want to create an awesome environment and build that and provide opportunity for other people. And then that can grow and somebody else can be the face of that. Yeah. Other than that, everything I do is directly tied to me personally, which is kind of a prison. Um, But if you don't like the walls in the window, you know, you're the warden of your own prison. Yeah, but I feel like you're, if you do the numbers on how much I make versus how much you make, you for clarity, would, I think for both of us, though, those are the least important. Yeah, 100%. Metrics. Yeah. But what I mean is, like, if you look at, like, what, like, growing a business, people, people think, for example, like, I'm a millionaire, and I'm not. Yeah. I, I make a, a decent salary, but I actually have employees that make more than me, right? The first two years, I had employees that made more than me times two. And so, like, not t- two people, time, like, double my salary. Yeah. Because my investment was back in the business always yeah. to grow the entity. Now, the payoff for growing a business on, at scale is the potential acquisition or sell of that business at a latter point, which is the investment that you are invested in over yep. time. But you, and it being your own brand and you being able to do your own thing, I, I think is super intelligent because you have, it's on you. You get up and you go, hey, this is on me. I get up and I go, I have to make sure that I motivate my team because it's on them. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it falls on me, but a lot of the decisions that are made from my CEO, DD, from my media guys. You that just go to the thing. CEO for the second time. You I, did see, I said CEO. You said CEO. I think it sounds, I think I have like a lisp or something. You 100% do not have a lisp. You, you don't think I have a list? CEO. Did I really? <laughs> you said maybe, it last night at dinner too. Maybe Multiple I, people caught it. Maybe to include Didi. Subconsciously, maybe that's. What, <laughs> I'm priming that gal for, for CEO life. I don't. Yeah, and I. So I look at your business model and even the accidental entrepreneur thing. There's there is a recipe there that I think we've both figured out, but you're living, that is self empowering and very important to tell people about. It's almost like the Evan Hafer story on like. How do you scale a, a, a drink, right, <laughs> into yep. a, a billion-dollar valuated publicly uh, public uh, company? And a I mean, lot of by the time this episode that. comes out, it will be. It would be. If you right? think about that, yeah. Next week, next, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. This will be out by the time be- it just happened. Yeah. Um, do you do you think? Because I think cleared hot, which is which is interesting. I don't think cleared hot is just you. Because I think it's become a thing, right? It's become a cultural thing where it talks about, it's like the uh, Tools of the Titans with um, Tim Ferriss. Hmm. It's, it's kind of its own little thing where you could do spin-off books, for example. Because you could do, you know, no, no, I'm not t- doing a book. Hear no. this out. Hear this out. <laughs> you I'm could, taking off this such hot jacket. Dude, it is. Game. It's so hot. Everil Stock hooked me, hooked me with that. I uh, hooked Andy up. But that, that's the hottest jacket, which is a good thing yeah. I've ever worn. It's so hot right now. So hot. <laughs> You, you uh, now that you took off your jacket, um, your, your transcribe alone of your podcast could be a book like Tools of Titans, where he actually transcribes the interviews hmm. that benefit people. And I just mean there's different opportunities for mediums that make sense to me for your brand. 
because it's such a significant, important brand. I think. What uh, What would be the motivation to do that though? Because when I when I initially look at an idea like that, I think, okay, like we were talking about. Um, somebody asked us a question at the leadership, at the Q and A at the end. What is your litmus test, or what's your driving principle or guiding principle? Mm-hmm when you make decisions. And for me, the money goes to the back end. And I have to think about things from, do I actually want to do this? And and for clarity for people who are listening or watching, I have made some of the fucking dumbest decisions with money. Mm. I'm not going to sit here and say that money is not a motivating factor in my life. I'm mm. just at an age and um, an experience level with money where I have stayed at jobs far too long because of what I was getting paid. And in that moment, I was like, oh God, this is the most money that a man could ever make. Mm-hmm. And now I look back, I'm like, oh my God, I had put golden handcuffs on myself and that amount of money is like a shitty quarter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's all the context of where you are. So I've been there, I've made poor decisions in making money in jobs. I've made poor decisions on saving money and buying them on what could only be described as frivolous and exciting things in the moment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> cool trucks. Cool wingsuits. I've invested in cool trucks. I've been smart enough to get the brands to buy the wingsuits for me. I haven't purchased that many myself. However, I do have a, a closet full of wingsuits. Really? Oh, yeah. I've got at least 15 of those things. Shut up. Oh, yeah. Well, I did. I was professionally jumping for almost five years. And, and they, the technology in the suits, it's like... Uh, How much does a wingsuit call? Like a top-tier wingsuit? 1500 bucks. Oh. The- it's, it's fabric. It's, people look at them as if they're made out of unobtainium. It's nylon with some ram air inlets on the front and the back, um, some zippers. It's, they're, not, they're not crazy. Wait, they're not integrated into your canopy? No, not at all. Oh. So, so you can okay. switch parachutes out. and um, You can jump almost any wingsuit with any container. So I can put a skydiving container on, take it off, put a base jumping container on, take it off. So the wingsuit, it just, it, it's, there's zippers in the back too. You just zip the container into the actual suit itself. Oh, wow. I yeah. did not know that. So I've played around with all, all of those aspects, um, and money has been to my detriment almost every single time. The desire to just try to make more money has been a detriment in my life almost every single time. Obviously, I understand there's an aspect of you have to pay your bills, take care of your family, your obligations, all those things, great. But the idea of transcribing the podcast, I look at that and I think, do I really want to do this? And if it sounds enticing to me, why? I would look at that as almost like a, a different way to try to make money. So my initial, like what the initial thought of that is like, man, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if it would help anybody. I don't, if people wanted to, if people wanted to learn about that, they could go on any streaming platform for free and click on it right now, right? So I don't know if it would necessarily, it wouldn't be any more empowering or enriching for me. Maybe it would help other people, but they would have to pay for that as opposed to right now, they could just go get it for free. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just a medium, a different medium for a different genre of people who just potentially don't want to necessarily listen. Or like me, if I listen to a good like Jack Carr's books are a prime example. I have all of his books. Yeah. And do you need me to sign them? You could sign them later. <laughs> I actually want you to sign them, Jack Carr. <laughs> but I have I have all those books um, in my collection, but I've never read them. But they're my reference. I like this idea of being able to reference off the shelf when the Google machine drops out yeah. um, or, or just have it referenceable. And so I think like even for every major audio book that I find impactful, I'll buy the hard copy. Yeah. And so I, th- I think it's just a different medium. Hmm. And I'm spitballing here, 
But I think your medium, which is free, where you provide the value for free, is um, people get want to give back, right? They want to support you because they want to support things that are doing good in the world. Yeah. And, and they're doing that. But like your swag sells out, like for example, every single time it drops. And it, it's a cool brand. But I think there's cool little mediums that you could do. Even with a coffee shop, we talked about doing the speaking engagements there. People are going to come into that town. The economy of that area is going to be boosted because of your brand. And yeah, there's Which was, And that was an intentional decision. Uh, myself and my business partner, when we were talking about the size and scope of the investment. So for people who maybe haven't heard, we're building a Black Rifle Coffee location in Kalispell on the, I guess it would be the southern end of town. The northern end of Kalispell, closer to Whitefish, has got the Lowe's, the Home Depot, like the newer construction, if you will. By Bass Pro? By Bass Pro. That, I yeah. would call That's the north end of town. I would say that's the, the more modern construction. The main street, like the building that the studio is in, the mm-hmm. historic buildings, that's more of the, the traditional area. But we were talking about it, and one of the first conversations that we had, we were just asking each other questions, like trying to figure out the why. Like, why do we want to do this? And I forget who asked the question. It was either he or I. But it's like, if you wanted to go and have a business meeting right now um, at a coffee shop or a location in town, where would you go? We were both scratching our head, like, hmm, not a really great place to do it. If you wanted to have an author or speaker come into town right now and do an engagement, where would you do it? Hmm. Not a great place. Why don't we build that? So it's a quarter block. I think I've showed you the renderings. In Old Town or is it in the new area? It is two blocks west of the current studio building on the same third app. So Historic downtown. Historic downtown, but historic downtown is getting revitalized. They're gonna do a boutique hotel one block away from the coffee shop that'll open up like a year after we're done. Really cool. Um, and I really, like you, were, like you were alluding to, I think it will boost the area around it and I think it will revitalize the area around it because we're gonna have seating for, I think 80 plus inside and 120 plus outside. It's a quarter of a block with this huge outdoor area, fireplaces for the winter time, a grass area, a stage outside, everything from Dudley could do archery lessons outside, or at Jack's next book, he comes and packs the house inside, does book signings or field craft survival events. Because you actually came to Kalispell one time, wasn't somebody ending a motorcycle ride there? They started in like Washington. Yeah, we it was our guys. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like there's so many other there's so many opportunities to do cool things if you have that anchor into the ground and a location or HQ to do it from. Yeah. That it has this gravitational pull and it'll pull people in there. So to me, again, to go back to how I make decisions, I'm like, oh, like that's why you do this. And mm. so you can elevate your friends and create an environment where you can just do cool shit. Yeah. That to me is the why. Will it be financially successful? I mean, we have a budget and, a, and an estimated P&L and I hope it's gonna be successful because I'm paying for it out yeah. of pocket. Yeah. You know, my, my business it's partner- It's not cheap either. No, the business, my business partner and I are absorbing a substantial amount of risk to do that. And in the long run, I have no doubt that it will be, but the investment for me is not in potential dollars in the end. It's what can you do? What can I do to enrich my life and the things that I want to do? I mean, to me, that was more of the the pin in the ground to even want to do something like that. And then the finances came later. I heard you on Rogan's podcast talk about, um, um, you know, your 20s were borderline just <laughs> apes. And then, you know, you're thir- with machine guns, with machine guns, 30s. You're, you're just kind of figuring it out. Yep. And then in your 40s, 
it's kind of it comes things start coming together yeah i mean <clears throat> people ask me a lot about um marriage now that i've been divorced which is odd because you should maybe talk to somebody whose marriage was successful, successful. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I can tell you about the, and actually the what i i tell them that and then i was like listen divorce should be a measure of last a measure of last resort and like explore everything else before that you do that but I'll give you my honest experience going through it and it was, it was fucking horrendous but I got married in my early 20s and uh, I've often been asked you know what advice would you give your former self um, and my former self in my 20s I would say hey dude you need to take your time like I didn't know who I was yeah. I thought I knew who I was but what I really was was like you said a monkey with a machine gun living my absolute best life, surrounded by the people I wanted to be surrounded by, doing exactly what I wanted to do. And I was so myopically focused on that job. I was not, um, I personally was not and should not have committed to that level of relationship in my 20s. Yeah. I wasn't ready to make business decisions. I wasn't, I honestly wasn't ready to do anything outside of the boundaries that the military had created for me. In my 30s, you know, I had, you know, started climbing the, the rank structure of the military. I had flipped over to being an officer, had a little bit of a different uh, approach to it. And in my 30s, I started actually being responsible for other people around me. So that changed my headspace for sure. And I think I was, I was ready to focus on smaller tasks um, with a little bit of a view of the horizon on the future. But I don't think it's been until the last four years, I'll turn 45 in October, that I have actually an idea or an understanding of who I am. It's, it's taken me that long. And I don't think that it's that uncommon. I'm not saying that people can't figure out who they are uh, much younger. But for me, I don't think I understood what I wanted from life and mm. what I was looking for from life until my 40s. Mm. Well, so what is it now? Because I, like I, we talked about, briefly talked about jujitsu yesterday in the professional development course. And um, I, I remember my life was the military, but when I was off, it was jiu-jitsu. It, it actually played a profound uh, impact in my life. And uh, it, mine was Machado. It was, I, I, yep. I rolled under Machado. So the SVG system that I uh, trained underneath, the, um, the head, the man who started uh, SPG, Matt Thornton, got his black belt from Hika Machado. Oh, so awesome. technically it's under that, I believe they call it lineage. Same lineage, yeah. 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 Um, after a f several injuries, that kind of scared me into a place where, like, I don't know if I want to risk this because, <laughs> dude, I spent six months last year, like, Arigato, Mr. Roboto. Like, By the way around, Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. Is it Domo? Yeah. Is, is that true, John? Is, is that Domo? Okay. John As the professional Korean in the room, you should have known that, even though I think it might have been Japanese. But John, he's actually, like, the, John is not his real name. He says, like, my, my um, media guy, John Park, who used to be a Korean Navy SEAL, like a legit Navy SEAL. Um, not saying there's illegitimate Navy SEALs, but a legit They're 100% Navy SEAL. are illegitimate Navy SEALs. You is can there? find them on the internet. A stolen Valor. Of course. Yeah. He, his first name is John, his last name's Park, and he ran Red Cell, and I'm like, John, suspect. Yeah. It's not John. It's like Sue. Oh, that's not a last name. What's a good first name? What's a good Korean first name? Sue? Minsu? Minsu. Minsu. Yeah. See, that's your real name. He just gave it away. <laughs> Interrogated, man. He, he just gave it. Minsu Park. Yeah. Um, what, were we, what were we talking about? <laughs> Tomo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. Oh, my Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu. So, when I... You're like a secret Jiu-Jitsu player, by the way. This is the first time I've ever heard you I am. talk about it. My, my most significant injury was... 
I was, as a team sergeant, I was training up the all Army's combatives team for 10th Special Forces Group. And we were at the Air Force Academy and we had all the fighters and me and another guy had been designated because of our combatives and jujitsu backgrounds. Because I, I, I have a Thai uh, stand-up, good Thai stand-up game, a little bit of boxing at MBS at a gym in uh, North Carolina, and then a, a, a good ground game. We were designated because we were waiting to take over these teams to um, go train the all-army combatives guys. So we had like D1 pro wrestlers, like great wrestlers. Yeah. And I got in, I was training with one of the guys and ripped my hamstring. Did you hear it go? Oh yeah. <laughs> Pop, gone. And then it rolled up like a fruit roll up in the back of my knee. <sighs> and my entire leg from a hip flexor to ankle was completely red. I had to get this ultrasound for blood clot. It was bad. Emergency surgery. Yeah. And so I have a scar this big from my ass to my knee. And then um, I'm missing about a fist size of my hamstring because of that injury. But that was one of the first injuries I had. And so I started kind of taking a step back. Like, yeah. Hey, How hard were you guys going? Freaking hard. In the paint? Oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, That's the kids, thing, right? Yeah. I've only been at this for just over three years. And uh, I have had minor injuries. And when I look back, 100% of them were my fault. Yeah. And I look at the either the way that I was training or the headspace that I was in that day. Um, one of the days I, you know, I got my arm kind of hyperextended and it's because I actually wasn't even paying attention. I was kind of just fucking around and, um, it popped. Well, people just in general, people make a big deal about tapping, right? Like it's this, as if it's this metric, um, where you're measuring yourself against somebody else. And my theory is who gives a fuck? Yeah. So I was, I was just kind of fucking off and letting somebody move. Yeah. And, I should have tapped long before, you know, it was a arm bar on my arm and I just let it go. And in hindsight, I realized that I was rolling with somebody who every time that we had rolled before um, and they had far less experience than me, it hadn't gone their way. Mm. And, I, and I was legitimately just letting the guy work and I realized yeah. afterwards, I'm like, oh, that's the first time he had ever gotten me into an arm bar. So he snapped it on. Because in his mind, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. dude, today's the day. And in my head, I'm just sitting there like, I was fucking... You're it was, flowing. It was completely my own fault. Yeah. So he snapped it on. I was like, and I was behind the power curve. My fault. Because now, like, if people get me locked in in an arm bar, I'm starting to tap as my arms. It's like, I'm not going to... Risk. Like, you got yeah. it. Like, let's start over. Let's play something else. Yeah. And then other moments where I was either too stubborn and trying to gnar my way through something, and then you, like, wake up the next morning, your neck doesn't work. You're like, the good move, asshole. Mm. Like, what? And for what, right? Yeah. So I have changed the way that I will train and I pay very close attention to the people that I train with. I'll either go incredibly defensively if they're um, technically, the technical term would be spazzing out. I'm mm. protecting myself or people that there is an immense level of trust because I've trained with them a bunch. We can go any pace from like warm up to world championships. Not that I've ever been in the world championships, but I've watched a lot of it on YouTube and they're going like fucking crazy. Yeah. But with people that I trust and I've trained with, it's anything that in between, but it's, uh, I want to do it for the long term. So I'm doing everything I can to avoid injuries like that. Yeah. Because I don't want to take six months off the mat. I don't want an emergency hamstring surgery. That's not yeah. why I'm participating in that activity. I, I need to find the right group of guys. I mean, that's the thing. You got to, yeah. or the right dojo or the right place. You could create it here, though. You have I all want the to. mats. I have all the mats. Yeah. We got yeah. 100 square yards of mats. We should do a field craft survival jiu-jitsu camp. It'd I be have, fun. I have touch points and at least the ability to communicate with 
as I'm sure you do, some of the highest level jujitsu coaches yeah. on earth, you should have them come up here for a weekend and It'd do a two so day fun, seminar. Man. It'd be fun. Yeah, and it'd get yeah. you back into it. Um, and I don't know. It, I think to me, it goes right into the like we were when I was just on Joe's podcast and we were trying to talk about the difference between prepping and preparation. Mm-hmm. Preparation, I completely support. Prepping, feel free to do with whatever you want to in your life, but. You know, you don't need sandbagged positions, in my yeah, opinion. If you're bearing buses, you're, yeah, you screwed up. Yeah, and uh, but part of preparation to me is being able to manage your ranges. Mm-hmm. You know, and you and I come from a world where at distance, no issue. You want to talk thousands of yards all the way up to contact shot with a pistol, that's great. But, I mean, what are the odds of you and I ever actually clearing leather in a civilian world? I, I hope that there's Very zero. rare. I hope yeah. that it's zero because I don't yeah. want to do that. I will if I have to, but... Dealing with a drunk idiot. Yeah. Dealing with a drunk family member at Thanksgiving. That's a fun one. Also, I've been that guy, so I can't judge it too harshly. Good night, Grandpa. <laughs> but it's, I mean, dealing with, uh, you know, God, I, I was watching this the other day at a, at a basketball game for one of my kids. Parents screaming at their children being coached playing basketball and other parents starting to get irritated almost to the point where a confrontation is going to occur. And I don't want to involve myself in that. What the reality is, is I would rather rip those two people apart. But if you don't know what to do if your hands touch somebody, yeah, you're screwed. So yeah. it's, it's it's a valuable portion of the preparation as well. I think it ties directly into what you it have. It does. On. 100% it does. There's no doubt in my mind. Like I, I've. It's weird because jujitsu is a sensitive topic for me because of my love for it. And then I Your see... Your secret love for it? Dude, I, ha- I do. <laughs> it's like, I used to be the... So I, I trained under Al Shabaro. Um, he, he was actually in the Commanders and Extremist Force with me. And he's a Pan Am, like, gold medalist. Like, all these dudes that I have impacted my life. Um, and, and then I've always done that as the balance between work and, and life. Yeah. So, like you said, with the relationships, I shouldn't have been in a relationship because I didn't give any time and attention to my marriage that ended poorly, I was committed to going, hey, I'm gonna shoot a USPSA match or do a combatives tournament or do jujitsu on the weekend. And when I when I look at my balance now, especially when it comes to, like I have a gym in my basement and I go down there every morning and I do things that I put on kit, for example, when I, I walk treadmill and incline because I wanna get moving. But I do dearly miss jujitsu, I'm afraid of the injury, but rolling with the right guys, I think I'd be back into it. I think match culture is important. I mean, we have people in, in uh, and I can only speak for the gym that I personally train at. I've done very little training um, at other gyms when I travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's a guy, Henry Akins, I'll train with him down in Las Vegas, but it's it's legitimately at his house. So super controlled environment. I've been to the Origin Immersion Camp with uh, Pete Roberts and Jocko. Uh, I would say less of a controlled environment because there's hundreds of people there, but that, that's actually my only exposure outside of the gym that I train at. But the gym where I train, there's a foundations program and then they call it the CAP program and it's, I hate to use the term advanced because I don't think, it's not like you're learning like secret techniques, but it's a higher intensity and then there's an open mat where you can roll afterwards. And they want you to graduate from the foundations program. My point in saying all of that is there's people in their 60s who yeah. are starting the foundations program. There was a guy in I love the, that. There was a guy in the course that we did yesterday. The last question he asked on his way out, he was like, hey, I emailed you about this and I apologize to people that I don't get back to on email. I do the best that I can because I know I didn't respond to him. But he's like, I'm in my mid to late 60s and I've heard you talking about jiu-jitsu, Jocko talking about jiu-jitsu, Joe talking about jiu-jitsu, and I want to start. 
Should I? And all I said to him was like, just start now. Whenever you get back, just go and start. Of course, make sure you find the right environment. If everybody on the mats is in their 20s and they're looking at you like fish bait, perhaps go to a different gym. Yeah, for sure. But if you can have, at the gym I train at, they have a huge kids program. I'm talking hundreds of kids, not there all at the same time, obviously. They have a women's specific program that Leah runs and she does women's self-defense programs. So she's like this anchor of development of a very strong women's culture at a gym, which I think is critical, especially if those women are um, in a relationship or married to some of the men that train there. It's another thing that they can they can bond over that, but they also have an environment where they feel comfortable training. Because I have to imagine for women getting into it, goddamn, and you know this from your first few years starting, like it's you're getting smashed. Yeah. And I don't know a lot of women who would voluntarily go into that environment with a a guy that they may not know who may have shitty intent putting them into those compromising positions. So I think that the women program is awesome. But then it's young to, uh, I think it was less than two years ago, a man in his 60s got his black belt. And that's beautiful. That's like, awesome. So it's everything. Right? Yeah. It's every age range. Yeah. And if you're later in life, you don't have to go in there and think you're going to be an MMA fighter. Yeah. You know, Find the right training partners and train at the pace that you want to train. And uh, there's a lot of people out there, like that guy last night who asked me that question. He's like, dude, I want to do this. Like, giddy up, homie. Yeah. Go get some. I would, if somebody's listening to this and they're a, an accomplished jujitsu practitioner, I would hire a guy full time right now to run the gym downstairs. I mean, we had in, in Prescott, I had an entire warehouse full of mats. Chad Robichaud was local, uh, who's an accomplished fighter and jujitsu practitioner. We'd have Darren. Uh, a lot of USC guys mm -hmm. come in, and we would have this mix-up. We tra we actually trained a few fighters, including my old training director Raul Martinez for his first professional fight, and um, it was amazing, man. I, I would hire right now a guy to run that downstairs, and, and I'm I, it's motivating me because I need it, and I see you guys, and I'm I, I'm almost envious a little bit because I'm like, man, they found the right guys to roll with, yeah, and that's key. I, I need the right leader of that, the right, I don't need the right, um, it's not necessarily lineage for me. I just need the right guy with the right personality that's not in here headbutting kids because he wants to start a fight school, but a guy who's interested in uh, developing people, especially in preparedness, because there's no doubt that the whole idea of self-defense starts with the ability to physically manage a situation. And, well, and I think it, you hear through field graph, I think it would give you the chance to go beyond just traditional jujitsu. Um, like I love jujitsu, um, but one thing that I, I caution people against, and I have heard this plenty, is people talking about it as if it's magic, which it's not. Yeah, it's angles sure. and leverage and pressure. Um, and of course, thousands of hours of rep and understanding human behavior, and if you can control somebody, the likely options that they would have to escape, that's all great. But tools also exist in the real world. And you and I both carry all the time. Let's say that same situation at a school where parents are starting to get into it. And really all I wanna do is just de-escalate it, A, before the cops need to come, or B, there's this massive fist fight, because I don't wanna have to, I don't wanna have to see anybody do that in front of kids. It's just a shitty example. Yeah, for sure. But let's say I'm carrying. Um, and you wanna put your hands on somebody. You know, it, the, it's not the proper time to, draw down on somebody. So now I have a tool on me 
but I'm also going to be putting my hands on somebody. And if people think that other people, once they realize that you have tools, are not going to try to get them, or oh, you man. don't have to think about 100%. retention of tools. Oof. So it would give you the chance to really combine that aspect of when you know you have to put your hands on somebody, when you could create distance and access your tools, because it's people also, I don't, and I'm sure you know this, they think that carrying a gun is magic too. Oh, yeah. I have a gun, so I'm gonna be good. Yeah. Dude, if, it, if it's you and me here, I can get all over the top of you before you could ever yeah. access your tool, right? That's so your go-to is your yeah, pistol. Yeah, it's, and, that, and that's great, until somebody's sprinting at you and you don't catch it until they're almost wrapping their arms around you in a bear hug. Edge weapons are exactly the same thing. Not only when to use them, but how in that environment, but also how to retain them. Yeah. I mean, how many, did you ever see the video of the FBI dude who did a backflip on the dance floor and his fucking pistol fell out? Yeah. Like, that's an example of, well, one, completely and utterly irresponsible behavior. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Backflip with a pistol. But two, I don't, I mean, let's talk about the retention of that particular holster. How is that gonna go if he is in a situation where they're tussling all over the place? That pistol might've come flying out and gone into the crowd and who knows how many friends that person might have or that person's ability to grab it. Yeah. It gives you the opportunity to address issues from utilization, um, you know, carrying positions. I still see people rocking like the six o'clock small of the back carry. I watched a guy do it in Kalispell. He had a, a Jeep that was covered in tactical Molenlaabe, come fucking get it. Like, and, it and he's walking around, because uh, um, open carry is allowed in Montana, He's walking around, it was in shorts, flip-flops, t-shirt, pistol, six o'clock carry position, no holster, it's purely tension. Just in his waistband. Just in his waistband, Sweet. and then just got into the driver's seat and wedged it in between his back and the Sweet. seat. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? There's so many things that you could talk about in a course like that, Yeah. from the proper gear selection, how to carry it, how much distance you would actually need to be able to utilize it, whether it's an edged weapon or a gun. I don't know about you, but I'm far more scared of knives than I am of guns at close They're distance. They're scary as hell, man. Holy shit. You want to look at some crime scene photos? Look at the difference of blood on the ground between bullet wounds generally and knife wounds. Yeah. Like, I'm far more scared of somebody with a blade than I am with a gun. No, me too. So You get jacked in the chest with a knife? Or just sliced across. I mean, like, and like, oh yeah, I'm going to get into a knife fight and do all this shit. It's like, maybe, but you might also end up with a nice, like, yeah. railroad pattern all over your shit and be looking at your blood pumping out of your body as you go unconscious. Yeah. You guys could teach all that. I mean, I basically have just created another core curriculum. So we teach you. that, but we don't do a lot of the combatives segments. Yeah. Imagine have, if you combine the two. We're going to do do that. We, we've actually done it before. It's called the cleared hot jujitsu. I'll call it that. <laughs> you better not. Cleared Philcraft <laughs> hot. Um, we we just hired a 12-year uh, police officer, female named Kirsten, who is a SWAT. You posted about her today. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing role model for bridging this gap of uh, women who are intimidated by this idea of self-defense or interaction, physical conflict, conflict resolution, and putting them through scenarios. She's going to be the head or the lead to run that course, which is all Sims-based, which is all scenario-based. You want to see some funny shit? Put people through scenarios for the first time, and the amount of the the amount of variables that people affect their behavior is through the freaking roof. Because a, a, lot of the, a lot of the things that we see in those courses aren't necessarily defaults to training because people lack the actual training. It's defaults to triggers and trauma. So you have people who aren't prepared for this scenario. 
that triggers this trauma inside them and immediately they start bawling in tears. And you're like, oh, what? we haven't even started because of the stressors that are just abound to happen. I love that course because I think any self-defense course shooting bullets through paper and steel is not a reflection of the reality of how things work. And I don't think we did enough of it. At the tail end of my career, we were doing a lot more Sims hits. Um, we did a lot of force on force. Did you guys do that? Yeah, tw I mean. Early on, did you Early on, no. No, but we were also running around with MP5 SDs and Nomex flight suits, so. Yeah, I remember those days. I mean, they were awesome. So bad. I can shoot the fuck out of a pistol caliber carbine. Those are your coolest <laughs> pictures. Those are your coolest <laughs> pictures. With that MP5. Thank God. Especially never, the K. Yeah, I think just thankfully we never had to go against other human beings with a pistol caliber round. It's so insane. I seen. I actually. Can saw, you imagine taking an MP5 to like Afghanistan or Iraq? I saw that recently. A picture of an operator with a K, really? shorty, a, a, on a bird, and he had it, and he was just like posing for a picture, and I was like, "Wow, that's interesting." Hopefully, he was just. They were like dropping the bird off somewhere, and he was just there to be like a passenger. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I get the MP7 thing because I get, I get a troop full of dudes saturating a target with all MP7s. Yeah. Because when you go into a room and there's six of you zipping dudes up, you don't stand a chance. Correct. But the sole operator um, on the rural hit with the MP5K, uh, not, not too smart. Yeah, you gotta have a mix. Um, there was a trend for people to go, and it was all based off of, I would say at least, um, weight reduction. Yeah. You know, because I mean, again, what does an MP7 magazine hold? Like at least probably 30. Yeah. And they're light, and it's a small round, and that's great. But 100 plus yards, yeah, you know, you can see that you could like arc the rounds zipping into the. Target. Or you can watch people thinking they're getting stung like a bee. And, yeah, and they're not necessarily going down. You got to shut down the computer, or they're gonna. I mean, they'll probably expire, but they're they're gonna run it off a little bit, which is problematic. Yeah. I've had that problem with the green tip in close proximity. Really, Just zipping. I, I zipped the dude um, behind a door, hiding behind a door, and my barrel was touching his body, and. Here's what I tell people about, especially about the understanding of how people, your perception of the threat being ended. Because yeah. people are like, my, my favorite scenario is I tell people a modified El Prez, let's take three targets side by side, you walk into your kid's bedroom and you have three equal uh, threats. How do you address them? This is a very shitty situation. How did they get in there in the first place? I know. It's they, like, <laughs> what, did they come in together? Like, they one climbed in the, in the window and they lined up exactly one and a half <laughs> yeah. yards apart. <laughs> so I give them that, like that's the best case scenario for the worst case. It's like yeah. they're equal distance apart. It, it's an easy recipe. And I always ask the question, how do you address uh, each individual? And what you get often is the legal jargon, right? I identify the threat and I eliminate the threat and then move on. And I said, well, how do you perceive that threat? So how many rounds does that mean to you? And some, a guy will go, well, as many as it takes. Yeah, and but I how said, many do you have on you? It, yeah. Well, and then I also say, like, if you take a guy and you have him stand up and he's standing tall and you say, guy, on the command of fall, I want you just to fall and land on the ground. We've actually measured it's between two and three seconds. Yeah. So I can shoot you 15 times in the face in two to three seconds, like just based on my split time. So if you look at that, you go, if you, if you waited to perceive when somebody was down because they're no longer a threat, that would be two to three seconds per person. You would be killed by an immediate threat because it's immediate, it's not imminent, it's, it's a guy pointing a gun at you, and you don't have the time. 
So the idea of like shooting an El Prez where a grandmaster can shoot an El Prez in less than four seconds with two, two, and two, a slide lock reload, and two, two, and two. Which, by the way, is incredibly impressive to watch. I've seen crazy. it happen. Insane. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it replicates anything in the real world. 100%. Yeah. So I, I would say like when you have more than one threat and you're addressing them, you do want to work the problem set as fast as possible to change the psychology of the gunfight. Meaning you might want to go two, 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 and then come back and then address the first guy who is still likely falling to the ground. Because that dude that I hit, I hit him 10 times with green tip. And we actually assessed an SSE and sensitive site exploitation what the rounds did. So we turned them over and we started- It was a contact shot? At it. Contact, yeah. yeah, all contact. And I, half of my round, this is a weird year. I don't know if you ever did this, but we were stacking green tip with, at this time period, 75 grain hornady. So we had one green tip, I never 62 got, grain. I never got creative yeah. with that shit. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we were getting creative because we had a couple vehicle interdictions where rounds weren't affecting the target as well with the uh, with um, at the time it was 55 grain and then like like whack rounds like 55 grain ball right so we we're like oh if we have one round that punches through one round that's not doing as well at least we have the double stack so you could see where the green tip where you could take a, a coke straw yeah. stick it through because it's high velocity not creating a lot of damage versus the hornady that was creating a basically a, a cloud of dissipation of energy that was opening up his back with big holes. Even on a contact shot? Even on a contact shot. Well, I mean, I say contact, but as we displaced, yeah. the, the first shot, the first several shots were contact. Close enough, yeah. Because he was hiding behind a door. I pinned the door with my barrel and had a 10.5 inch barrel and then pushed it, illuminated the space under nods. And it was like, oh shit. And then it was like, click, boom, 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 boom. And so- That's not very good hide and seek by him. No, not at all. Have you ever, hypothetically, had this hide and seek situation where you go into a room and as you're clearing your required area, maybe there's curtains and you see feet sticking out underneath? <laughs> I have. Dude, I had one instance in uh, Afghanistan where we were clearing underneath the house in a structure and there was a brick wall. And in a port of the wall, it's where you clean the shitter. Yeah. So you stuck the shovel into the poop and then and looking down in there, there's a dude hiding and he's in the shit, literally, and hot, and you're just like, oh, this is bad for you. Mm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry this is the way you have to go. <laughs> this is where it ends. Um, but yeah, th those, those are funny moments, man. Yeah, um, I never had that experience with Green Tip. I never, I don't know if I ever contact shot anybody with it. I think it performs better um, at distance. Probably. Did you guys use Green Tip primarily? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. At that time period, that's all we had. Yeah. Right? There wasn't a lot. I never got nerdy about, you know, there are guys, well, maybe nerdy is not the right term. I never got passionate about ammo or particular weapon system. Yeah. I've never been that guy. People, well, you know, what did you modify about your weapon when they issued it to you? I was like, mm, maybe I spray painted it? You know, yeah. like maybe? Yeah. Or like scrape the rust off from the asshole that turned it in before it got issued to me on the previous deployment and make yeah. sure that it worked. But I just shot the ammo, you know, like, where'd you get your ammo? I'm like the green canister, then it came in brown boxes. Yeah. You know, I never, I never went uh, deep down the rabbit hole. I know that there were guys who, I mean, they're nerding out over like a one to eight twist versus a one to six or a one to yeah. seven five. 
to me, when it came to the weapons, if they went bang and it, the projectile had the desired impact, like it was good. Yeah, and we got what we got too. Yeah, and and uh. I, I think now even at development group, there was some there was a little bit of leeway. From my understanding, it's gotten better, and their procurement process is extremely robust. And and truly, part of the the mission set there is to develop. So they're playing with a lot of stuff. I I just never got into it. I would have maybe the there was armorers there, and then they were great. Maybe shave off a little bit of the pressure yeah. on the trigger. You know, where like, hey, can you move this piece over to here? Or, you know, like, this is my breaching shotgun. Like, I need this thing as light as possible. Cut everything off, and I'm going to bungee it underneath my arm, and they would do that stuff for me. But, yeah. I mean, I think green tip beyond 25 yards, the, the performance starts to improve as well. Yeah, but it's certainly coming out the backside for sure. Yeah, and I saw and I witnessed people get shot five, six, seven, eight times in the chest and kind of walk it off. Yeah, I mean they expired, but they there was time in between that, and you'd find them a couple rooms deep. It's not optimal. Yeah, especially if they're just looking for a button to push. You know. Yeah, it's it's weird because I I found that um, this idea that the switch gets flipped on people, it's very rare. I mean I saw it in sniper operations. Yeah, uh, I've seen. Like, a, uh, I can't remember who it was, maybe one of my buddies, Damon, hit a dude uh, center line and completely disconnected his central nervous system. But it was like the puppet master cut the Spine strings. Spine pulled out. Yeah. yeah, it was like, right? And he just collapsed. Yeah, I mean, it was like the strings were cut and there was no rigidity, contraction, muscle. Yep. And it just was a different effect than I was used to seeing. What round was that? Your honey. It was, um, that probably was a 300 wind mag. Yeah, that's... That is a, the overpressure involved with that for a human being is. Oh yeah, you can't, yeah, you ain't walking that off. You're not, it's, yeah. so yeah, that doesn't surprise me that that happened. Yeah, in my experience, it's the opposite of the movies. Unless you take what's on the inside of their head and put it on the outside of their head, the, the, it's not as instantaneous as people yeah. would think. You gotta, you almost gotta find it. It's like, it's like yeah. shooting the, the star at the county fair. You're like hunting, 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 hunting. The most effective, I, I would say the most effective training um, target that I've seen was in Safartech, um, which is a whack acronym, like Range 37 and Special Operations. Please change that acronym. It's like Special Forces Advanced Reconnaissance Target Acquisition and Interdiction Course or some whack stuff. They got to work on that. They have to. It's crazy. But it's, um, we, they had a target set up where they had a, um, a rubber band through a styrofoam head. And then it went through the styrofoam head into the chest of the target, and there was a balloon wrapped mm. around the, the rubber band. And it had a t-shirt on it. And you would hang it from the corner and the point of domination, and you go in. So if you shot it and you hit it once, this whole double tap, this whole like, couple shots would not work. Because if you didn't hit the balloon precisely, it wouldn't fall. Because oh, it would pop and then snap the rubber band, and then the whole thing would collapse. Yeah. Well, we got into this, um, we got used to this idea of coming into rooms, points of domination, and, and instead of going boom, 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 boom for every target, it was boom, 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 boom. Drive it to the ground. And, and then you look for the reaction and it drops out. I think I went to Sephardic in 05, and then you, like, from that trip, <coughs> from that training scenario going into combat, I remember pack manning targets, <coughs> bad guys, and doing that. And looking for that desired effect and then going, okay, he's gone. Now we can move on. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of just getting pop, pop, and then moving on. Like this idea, like two rounds is going to get her done. Not happening in real life. It's a good academic principle. <laughs> yeah, it's good for, I think it's good for the uh, 
especially for the acquisition of finding a target, the shot process, and then the, uh, the repetition on target, it's a good principle to, to build fundamentals. It's easy to grade too. It's easy yeah. for a cadre to come down and 100%. either, you know, hey, you did a good job or, you know, go grab the tire and do a lap with it. Yeah. But 100%. yeah, it's, uh, if two gets it done, good for you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my personal theory is drive it to the ground. Yeah. I, my, mine is stitch it from sternum to head. Like I, I realized work the problem set by stitching it, increasing the probability that you're putting the bad guy down. This is all hypothetical, of course, for people listening. Yeah, well, this is not real. We're not talking about... It's like, look at just these three serial killers. I just realized we may have probably lost the vast majority of the audience. <laughs> oh, this is recorded? Yeah. Oh, oh, my yeah. bad. Let's, let's divert to something, because I, I, on the way in here, in Heber City, there's a beautiful airport across the road, and I was thinking about this because we had talked about it yesterday. Aviation? Aviation. I am... I am in, intrigued by the process... I did groundwork uh, when I was in GRS overseas. I like I did the whole academic yep. uh, portion of it, and then did a couple rounds with my ex girlfriend's father, who was who owned an aviation company, and got to fly with him. But you knocked out all of your stuff really fast. Where did that desire come to fly? Why did you get into it? And then how come? Are you still doing that? Because it doesn't seem like you no, are. No, I'm not current. The good thing is, though, for pilot's licenses, they're good for life. Like, mm. It's not like they're going to take them away. There's, is, Of course, and there has to be a recurrency process. Yeah. So I am not current when it comes to aviation. However, I still hold the licenses. Um, but you can get in a plane right now and fly, right? Or I, do you have to go through with a... I, no, I would need to go through a recurrent process. Okay, okay. Um, could, I, could I physically do that? Like, as we were driving to your house yesterday, and I was telling you about the Cirrus aircraft there. Yeah. I think I've got like 1,500 hours into Cirrus. I could go in there and run through the entire checklist checklist by memory. It wouldn't be legal for me to do so. So physically, yes, I could get that plane off the ground and land it and we'd be fine. However, that's not the route that anybody should take, nor would I ever take that. Um, when I left the East Coast Command and, and I checked it in as a BUDS instructor, they were looking at ways to increase throughput. So for a year, they got rid of winter hell weeks. So there was this gap in training. So I was a second phase instructor and they had just finished a second phase class and they were holding off starting first phase until after winter. Wow. So I check in and-, and In Sunday, California. Yeah, I yeah. check in and the guy's like, uh, see you in four months. I mean, nice. obviously I would go into work. Yeah, yeah. check in every once in a while. Yeah, so I didn't have anything to do. And as I was driving home from work one day, I was living uh, in a subdivision of San Diego called Santee, um, aptly called Santucky sometimes. And uh, there's an airport there. And the route that I would take to get home was on the freeway that would go underneath it. And you would see these Cessnas coming in, just fighting every aspect of aerodynamics because there were student pilots fly flying them. And Oof. most student pilot flights are basically a controlled crash to include the ones that I did. And so I'm looking up at it. I was like, son of a bitch, that looks interesting. Yeah. So I got off the freeway, went over to the flight school, started asking questions. This is random. Totally random. A drive-by. Drive-by. Literally, wow. I was looking at the airplane. I'm like, that looks insane. Yeah. I think if I go left here, I can go to the flight school and ask questions. So I drove <laughs> over there, talked to the people there. And most flight schools, to include that one, have a program like, hey, the first flight's on us. So I was like, I would like to do uh, Your... my, my first lesson. Yeah. So I get into the plane, and it's like, the first time you fly an airplane, you need to use air quotes for that because 
what you'll notice is the instructor has their hands all over everything as well. There's yeah. two seats up front. They don't want you to die. Yeah, you might get to pull back on it a little bit, but you'll notice their hand is on their yoke as well too, yeah. which it should be. And you do some traffic pattern work and you land and it's like, hey, what do you want to do? I would like to become a private pilot. So I got like 40 hours, got my private pilot's license and just kind of shelved it. That's all it takes is 40 hours? I think you can get it in less than that. You can probably get it in in your thir in like the 30s or the 40s. Um, there is a there is a knowledge aspect, so you have to take a ground test and then you take the practical test as well too. Um, both are equally difficult actually. There's a, yeah. there's a large knowledge base involved, airspace, weather, um, and everything in between. And then the practical aspect, I mean you do stall recoveries, you'll do limited visibility, they'll do an exercise, you know, where you essentially they can they figure out ways to, you know, kind of get you lost and you have to identify where you are just off of radio beacons and things like that. You learn how to do all of that stuff. Yeah. It's it's a good test and you take off and landings and all that stuff, aborted takeoffs, aborted landings, making sure that once they sign off for you to like, you know, bless you to go fly by yourself, you're not gonna kill anybody or yourself. And after that, I kind of shelved it and just started being a second phase buds instructor. This is pre becoming an officer. Mm -hmm. Oh, so this is early on. Yeah, this is in like 06. Oh, wow. Yeah, I got commissioned in Octo October 1st of 08. So this is like 06. And I had already, shortly after getting to buds, I started working for CrossFit on the weekends. First, just attending seminars and then working on the military seminar side of the house specifically and almost exclusively up in Canada and not very frequently at yeah. all. And then that job kind of built over time. I was working on the weekends, nearly every weekend, just teaching the philosophy of CrossFit, yeah. the normal level one, traveling around the world. And at the time, the founder had a house in Santa Cruz, Prescott, and San Diego. Yeah. And he was like on this death spiral of like driving back and forth. It's just this death triangle of about eight to 10 hours from location to location. And he called me one day, he's like, hey, you have your private pilot license, right? I said, yeah. And I said, I'm not current though. And he goes, okay, we're buying an airplane. I'm tired of doing this drive, so start. <laughs> what? Yeah, he said, so start doing your flight training again. Have you ever told this story? Because this is like yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's not that crazy. It's you know, insane. I wasn't flying unicorns around or anything. Yeah. Um, or Because I forgot about your, uh, you were really involved in CrossFit. Mm -hmm. For a short period of time, yeah. Um, so the next day, uh, and so when I had learned to fly, as most people do, it was like Cessnas, 152s, 172s, 182s. People call them steam gauges, just the analog gauges versus a glass cockpit. Both work really like well. Like a Cirrus. Correct. And yeah. so when I had learned, all of my training was specifically on analog gauges. Because, and when it comes to taking flight lessons, there is a cost associated with technology. Like if you want to take lessons in an airplane that has a full glass cockpit, you could probably expect to pay a lot more per hour. And they didn't even have them at the school that I got my license in, so it was all on analog. And it had been a uh, it had been probably two or three years since I had got my license. So I did a little bit of research first, like in San Diego, where's a good flight school to go to? And I found a place that was a Cirrus training center. So that's mm. when I first got my exposure. And so when I started retraining, everything from then on was completely on glass which it's a different skill set for sure. It actually can overload you with a lot of information because you can just present so much more and it's much more visual and graphic in nature. So at first the I got- The Cirrus is. The Cirrus is. It's like flying an iPad. It's like all- Flying a couple iPads. Yeah. And now they have like, you know, it's all touchscreen instead of analog buttons and Bluetooth and you can get like flight logs and, and all sorts of stuff. You can all do it digitally. So it's definitely gone that direction. I, uh, so I started, one, I had to get recurrent. So, and I did that in a Cirrus. 
And then I started tackling my instrument rating. And for people, and when you get to this point, my advice to you is once you start, don't stop until it's done. Because the instrument rating test is again, on the ground, you do a test on a computer, then a oral test with a FAA examiner, and then a flight test. Mm. I would say the flight test is the easiest part of it. There is a huge knowledge base when it comes to instrument or IFR stuff. So made it through that. Um, and I don't remember what I got next first. It was either my multi-engine or my commercial, but I ended up getting both. And around that time, I got introduced to a guy who worked for the FAA named Scott, who ended up um, becoming friends, and he really shepherded me through my aviation journey. Um, Greg got his Cirrus at about that time, so I was banking hours back and forth from Prescott all the time. Prescott, Watsonville, San Diego, just versions of you know uh, Scottsdale, like just everywhere. San Francisco, SFO, LAX, like, like all kinds. This of is stuff. all your free time as you're still a SEAL, right? Correct. When you're at Bud's. Um, at this point, I had finished my tour at Bud's, had done my tour at Team 3, and was now the um, that was, uh, operations officer at the training detachment. Oh, awesome. So we're talking afternoons. I would I was, Actually, when I was getting my instrument rating, I had an instructor that was, he was awesome when it came to uh, accommodating my timing. And there's a marine layer um, mm -hmm. for a lot of months in San Diego. So I would go in early morning and we would do instrument training flights. And so I was shooting, a lot of the times you'll throw goggles on, you know, to limit your visibility. But every day that I was out there training, I was doing actual instrument approaches in marine layer. So I was actually flying through clouds and getting used to that. It was awesome, and then I would go to work. So I'd go do flight lessons in the morning and then go to work and maybe do flight lessons in the evening. Greg got a Cirrus, um, again, so the, all of the, the flying going on. And Scott, at that point, you know, the FAA, they have people that do check rides and they go and. For charter organizations, there are, I think it's, I think every six months you have to have an FAA guy on board and both the left seat and right seat pilot, they get, they get checked by the FAA to make sure that, hey, that you don't suck and you're not going to kill anybody. And he invited me one day. He's like, hey man, I'm going to go do a check ride in the Gulfstream. You want to just come sit in the back? I'm like, that's a fucking stupid question. Of course I want to sit in the back of a fucking G4. Mm. So we flew up to like Long Beach and came back. And he hit me up a few days later. He's like, um, they're actually short one pilot up there for that Gulfstream. And I don't know if it's possible, and I don't know if the school would let you go, but if you want to go get your G4 type rating, what? they're willing to give you an opportunity to fly with them. And I was like, fuck yeah. So I went up to Flight Safety, um, Long Beach, and went through the- The sim. The Gulf, it was the full type rating course. It was four weeks of training and passed. And then went back to San Diego and did my first left seat flight as pilot in command in the Gulfstream with 486 hours. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it was all because of Scott. He was, you know, the uh, flight safety was like, there's no way. The average number of flight hours for somebody making it through this program is about 3,000. I had 460, I think, when I started. Wow. And uh, I was able to make it through. And, and the reason why is it's all of aviation is checklist based. Like you'll crush aviation because it's like do this, 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 and this. Yeah. If this doesn't work or there's this emergency, pull out this manual and flip to this page and do this, 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 and this. So I started flying the Gulfstream in addition to flying with Greg and it was awesome. I mean the first flight I did, it was in the right seat. We were up, I flew up to Canada, met the airplane. I think we flew to Texas and then we flew to Bermuda or something like that. Wow. And I flew that thing to Hawaii, um, Vegas. Turks and Caicos. What do you enjoy about it? 
Is it the technical Dave, aspect? It was just fun as hell, man. Yeah. It was awesome. I mean, we were flying into like Boston in the middle of a snowstorm and you're flipping down the heads up display and landing this thing under a thermal. I mean, the thing, it Damn. was awesome. It was constantly changing. I, uh, we were coming back from, uh, we were in Vegas and we were flying into Van Nuys. And a lot of the times, if you're flying um, celebrities, though, they have to provide a manifest. It's part 135 aviation. Right before they show up, they'll give you the real name. So Dr. Dre rolled up and he gets on the, uh, the Gulfstream. And it was my left-hand seat. Wait, in your bird? Yeah, in the Gulfstream. <laughs> so we're getting there and you do a brief. And it was my turn to do the brief because I was flying the left-hand seat leg. And I get back there and it's like, hey, here's the emergency exits. And it gets to a point where there's like a medical issue. I'm like, hey, if there's a medical issue, I'm going to turn it over to you because you're the only doctor on board. And he fucking lost his shit laughing. <laughs> and then I went back up there and then like in the flight, he's like sitting in between us bullshit. And I'm like, dude, just hop in the jump seat, like sit up here when we land. It's, and he was cool as shit. That's so cool. So we got to fly all over. And what I loved about it is it was like different locations all the time. And so you're just problem solving, you know, you're flying to different places. And then I got linked up with another aviation uh, organization, again, through Scott that flew smaller aircraft, the Citation 525 series, which is like your Citation 1, Citation 2, CJ1 through CJ4. And if you get that 525S, which means single pilot, meaning you don't have to have a co-pilot. In a Gulfstream? No, no, Gulfstream is required uh, to have two. Okay, okay. The 525S rating is a single pilot. That's what the S stands for. Yeah. And it rates you in the Citation 1, Citation 2, CJ1, CJ2, CJ3, CJ4. So you can fly dual prop, you can fly? Jet. They're jets. Oh. So I went through that um, course. And these certification courses, they're done in a simulator. What's crazy about this is that you're, you're certified to fly this aircraft, and you've never flown this aircraft except in a video game. Now, obviously, they're not just going to huck you the keys to yeah. a plane and say, go do some laps. It's so expensive, though, to fly the actual thing, right? Correct. So there's the mentorship, and you know, there's a process before you actually do that. But you literally like, get, you're like, here you go. Here's your 525. And I had enough hours. So I was able to take my ATP or my airline transport pilot license um, check ride while doing, so you can get both concurrently. So I got my ATP, which is the same thing that like Delta pilots and Southwest pilots have. And I got my 525S in the same check ride and then just flew those for a while too. What, ha what happened? Why did it, like what was the, my motivation too is I want to be challenged. Every year yep. I want to do a challenge, right? This year's motorsports rally. I want to do um, Pikes Peak next year. I want to go after Travis Estrada's record, which would be hard to do because he had one of the best cars um, built by a uh, Vermont sports car. Um, and I want to do the pilots thing next year because I actually want to buy a, a Cirrus mm -hmm. and try to fly cause, for the same reasons because I'm flying all over the country doing stuff. Um, why did you, why'd that, why'd that fall out? Because then you, you went from there to like jumping out of the back of them. Time. So that, again, accidental entrepreneur, right? I didn't know it was going to go down that path. And at that same, um, as I was doing the part 135 aviation, I stopped working for CrossFit and the part 135 aviation, it's very hit or miss. And you're actually, you're completely based off of other people's desire, desires and time schedule. When nobody charters the plane, you don't fly. Yeah. When somebody calls up and you're getting ready to go on a family vacation and you get a call from the charter company like, hey, somebody just booked the Gulfstream and they're going to go to Hawaii for 10 days, you got to have a hard conversation with your spouse. Like, I can't go. Because oftentimes you'll stay with the airplane in case they want to do like inner island hops, which you're getting paid for per day and it's a, it's a good daily rate. But the bigger the airplane, the bigger the suitcase and yeah. the longer you're gone. So it was infrequent. 
And I had been jumping more while working for CrossFit because I lived like 10 minutes from the drop zone. So I started doing the professional skydiving and base jumping thing while I was doing the, the public speaking was up uh, on ramping as well. And then I did the record jump attempt in 2015, which led me to being on podcasts for the first time, which is how I met Joe and his recommendation to start a podcast. So all of this shit was happening at the same time. And it was a, it was a decision based off which one of these is the most economically viable from a sustained perspective and the flying, although it was a lot of fun, was the lowest rung. I could count on it the least because, I mean, Gulf Streams, low end Gulf Streams are going to be six to $7,000 an hour. To turn that fucker on, six or seven grand, yeah. you know? And as you, the numbers get bigger, you know, the 550, the 650, the now the 700s or whatever comes, like that number's not getting smaller yeah. as the aircraft is getting bigger. So there'd be big gaps. The skydiving world, I was now getting sponsorship and endorsement deals that were guaranteed money every month. So I didn't need to worry about that and I cut free the one thing that wasn't, that was uh, the least consistent. So it was a decision purely based off of that with the knowledge that the licenses will be good and I can go back through recurrency programs and it's not like I'm gonna lose the ability to fly. Yeah. So it was cool to do in that time period. It was very challenging, I loved it. I, was, I would say I was okay at it, um, but I, I I had to take other opportunities as they presented themselves. Like, you should write the book Accidental Entrepreneur. Like, I have no ownership over you that. You have to. But that's literally- I wrote it down, we trademarked it, so you can't, <laughs> people can't use it. We just reserved it for you. I took opportunities as they presented themselves. Aviation was one thing. It, what's, the, what's the record you hold? It's longest distance over- it, the record I held, it has since been broke. By uh, the Army, right? The Arm or that old it was a, knight? It was, no, it was a Marine Corps aviation, it was a Marine Corps helicopter pilot. I'm, I apologize to him, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But it was, there was two records. It was the absolute distance uh, flown, which means you add the canopy travel to the wingsuit travel, and then the distance just flown under a wingsuit as well. He beat it by a quarter of a mile, I think, something like that. Did, so did he beat it because he had more elevation and height? Probably just better at flying. Or just tracked. It could have been all of those things, but the reality is probably just better at me than a wingsuit. Yeah. Yeah. Trevor Thompson was tracking you on that one, right? Was he was he your camera guy on that? There was no camera guy. Any footage from that comes from a GoPro that was uh, facing in the rear because you had to strip all the people out of the airplane to achieve the altitude that we did. What'd you jump at? What was the thirty six five? No O two or O two obviously. For sure. Full uh, one hour pre breathe uh, on the ground before starting the engines. Uh, slow flight to altitude, and we were in a highly, highly modified Cessna caravan yeah. that was like completely firewalled and barely maintaining altitude. Oof. Yeah. That's insane. What's it like to jump from that height? It's cold. Ball's cold. It's got to be. It's, it's cold. I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt underneath. I didn't really plan that one well. Oof. But it was the summertime in Northern California, so when I got to the ground, it was like 100 degrees. Wow. So, I, saw, I just saw that Travis Pastrana got injured on a base jump. And he's our age, cl- close to it. He's a little younger than us. But I think... He goes hard in the paint, man. I, I almost, I think somebody told me that that jump was just like a random act of like, here's did, an opportunity, did it just ran, do it. Did it happen recently? It happened like a, uh, almost two, two weeks ago. Base jumping is very high risk and it's very high consequence. Yeah. Um, I would never try to talk anybody out of it, but I would always try to have very open and honest conversations about what you're getting into. You ever have any, he broke his back, I think it, like the L series yep. and fractured his hip. And I'm supposed to film with him in like two weeks, which is gonna be great because he's gonna be injured. He's probably gonna be in a diaper teaching me how to race a rally car. Still out driving you, I would imagine. Out driving <laughs> me for sure, for sure. Um, 
you, you, this whole, I'm fascinated by this. This is why I'm in my own curiosity. And imagine selfishly, because it's the cleared Philcraft hot podcast. Yes, indeed. I'm trying to uh, source for my audience. But I'm fascinated about this whole idea of base jumping because um, I ha I'm just talking to you about it. I have hundreds of jumps, but I'm not anywhere near the world that you come from with wingsuit and also base jumping. And there's a mechanism in me that it's, I feel like it's a glitch because I've had it happen before where um, I, I get out and I, there's something in me I don't trust myself. And so I, I actually say to myself, if I base jump and I go out and I'm supposed to arch hard and, and, and get stable and I go out, I feel like I have a mechanism in me to go, oh God, and then just tuck <laughs> and roll and just die and burn in. It's like, it's like the idea the of tuck driving. and roll mechanism. Yeah, it's like the idea of driving down uh, oncoming traffic where I look at oncoming traffic and I'm like, that's all it takes right there. And, and my brain's like, did you just do that? Like, oh God. God. Like, it's, it, it, I can't yeah. get that out of my head. It's weird. Um, I, I don't know what to yeah. say about that. I've never heard anybody describe it's a glitch. It's a glitch. The tuck and roll. Um, there's plenty of self-doubt when it comes to base jumping, at least for me. There's plenty of standing on the edge, questioning life choices and decisions that yeah. got you to that point. But you always send it, though. Have you ever said, I'm, done, I'm not doing oh, it? Oh, fuck yeah. I've oh, really? Way, I mean, I would rather be the person that walks down for more base jumps than the person who successfully completes the most and goes out in a blaze of glory. You, ha I mean, our career field that we came from, I mean, how much time do we spend analyzing, assessing, and mitigating risk? Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. And, that, I mean, and then so the, the training process, or the planning process, which unless it's like an incredibly important TST or time-sensitive target, we're talking like 72 hours in front of PowerPoint, crushing shit, right? Oh. I mean, for a deliberate operation, you know, two or three days. Oh, I thought project. you meant for a base jump. No, but I'll get to the, how it ties into a base jump. And what are we looking at in that whole thing? Like, most likely course of action, most deadly course of action, primary, secondary, tertiary, contingency planning, like what ifs. And a lot of that is based around what's the risk? Where's the risk gonna come from? So that all still works in the base jumping world. Like, you wake up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee, you look outside, you check the weather. What you're actually doing is you're starting your risk assessment, right? Yeah. Because what do the winds look like? You know, is it overcast? Is there uh, an inversion? Is there rain in the air? And you can jump in all of those conditions, but you need to be aware of them, right? So it's, I'm very used to assessing the risk that is around me and mitigating it how I can. And one way you can mitigate it is through experience. Mm. You know, I would say the first target that we ever went on, I was probably more of a danger to myself than other people. Yeah, for sure. By the time you hit multiple hundreds of targets, you know what the fuck you're doing and people yeah. better watch the fuck out. Um, you know, base jumping, so you, a lot of it is walking. There's more hiking uphill than flying downhill. It's the same distance, one just takes a hell of a lot longer than the other. But if you're not paying attention to everything that's going on while you're doing that, to include the people you're gonna be jumping with, you know, are you with a group of people that are fucking ripping joints on the way up? Mm. Are you jumping with people that partied super hard the night before and are hungover, maybe still drunk? Um, is the wind shifting? Because what you want to do is when you're standing on the edge, the optimal condition is the wind is rushing up at you. You have this, this lift coming up. Um, you know, in the evening times, often it will reverse and it's going down. Same thing with hunting, right? Yeah, exactly. So the wingsuits, I mean, like aircraft, it's just a wing. The more airflow that you can get over the top and underneath the wing, the better it's going to start flying. So if the wind is rushing up at you, and I've been on some amazing fucking jumps in Switzerland where, like the high young frau, where it's like a four four hour hike and you're just wrecked. And, and I did this one time, 
uh, with my buddy Alex, who unfortunately uh, passed away base jumping. But we're both standing up there, and the cloud layer was below us, and it was thin and we could see through, but it was just like hitting the wall and ripping up and just flying up in front of our face, and you would spit and it would go flying up. Good sign for jumping. Good sign. You jump into that head first, and you're in like the start. It's called the start, and it probably not the best description, but you know, there's vertical falling and then there's horizontal travel. How fast can you get your suit from zero air speed falling to horizontal travel? The start. How far? How long it takes uh, for it to start flying? You jump off in those conditions and you feel like you already have your foot to the gas pedal. You jump off with a, with a tailwind and it's pushing you down. And I've done it and I wish that I hadn't because it feels like you're being smashed into your death. You're just like, oh fuck, and the wind is pushing you down and you feel like you're like in first gear spinning tires. It's like much. jumping out of a helicopter versus jumping off oh. into off of the back of a uh, Off of a helicopter airplane. versus into a wind tunnel. Yeah. You know, so you have opportunities to assess, analyze, and mitigate risk. All the way up to zipping your suit up, putting your toes on the edge. And I've walked back from plenty. I see weather conditions coming in. Because there's the weather conditions where you're going to step off. But there's some jumps in Switzerland where you're just making these continuous right-hand turn. And you're like landing miles from where you start the jump. Well, if there's an overcast layer, like it's bluebird where you are, but you look a couple miles down, you're like, oh shit, that's where the landing zone is. Like, Not doing we it, can't yeah. do it. A lot of people will though, because they don't want to hike down. Uh, my theory on that is, fuck no. Um, if I get up to the edge and I'm like ridiculously um, doubting my ability to be able to complete the jump or I don't feel current or I don't feel mentally into it, I'll take a break to start with, but I'll just walk back down. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in, a, in a rush to make some highlight video on YouTube and then at one point in time die in the execution of trying to do that. It's just not worth it to me. Who, how did Alex pass away? He hit a tree head first. Was he doing the wingsuit flight yeah. through? He was not. Um, so I wasn't there. Uh, so I'm speaking a little bit out of school, but in talking to a guy who was there with him and watched it happen. He was in France and he jumped off and he, there was a section of terrain that jutted out and there was two trees on it from my understanding. And it's awesome to fly two or three feet off the ground at 150 miles an hour through You've trees. Done that. Yeah. And they're like, they're called tree gates, right? You can just treat it like a, a, a gate at any other, like a rally course or a, you know, a skiing and it's awesome to rip through those things and it makes killer video. Because you're below the height of the trees. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, you're below the height of the tree. Like you're almost touching your shadow. That's how low you're getting. A lot of the times I'll judge how high I am off the ground just by how close I'm getting to my shadow. And you don't really start seeing it come up underneath you until you're about six feet from the ground, depending on the angle. It's gnarly. It's, it's very visual, for sure. Um, and <clears throat> I feel like I have to poop. Can we take a poop break? Because I just feel like... <laughs> he... Uh, Again, I wasn't there. I have no opportunity to discuss with him obviously what happened, but in talking to somebody who was there, it seems as if he had committed to flying between those two even beyond where the performance capable from his suit was not going to allow it. Yeah. So in his attempt to do so, he hit one of the trees. I've lost a lot of friends in these things. I've, had, I've I have lost two. That one hit me the hardest. Four friends and similar, Jason Granger, Tony Rokov. Sea oh, squadron guy, like just a lot of dudes that are just. Do you feel like? Because I haven't noticed that you've done it recently. That's because I don't have access to a, a drop zone nearby anymore. And for me, again, analyzing, assessing, and mitigating risk. I am no longer current to the degree that I was, so I will not engage in those activities because of the risk that is 
left behind and I cannot mitigate it until I get myself back to a drop zone and start working on currency again. Mm. Now what we're talking about doing, potentially doing a jump into the backcountry, I, I have enough jumps now, um, like over 7,000 combined skydives and base jumps at this point, far more skydives than base jumps. Um, like landing on terrain that is flat, like that's easy. You know I mean? You, you get an experience level. Of course though, I would go and, I mean, we should probably do some jumps out in Tuella, yeah. some tunnel time in, uh, in Ogden or wherever we may be, but it, like that type of stuff, it'll come back in seconds. I wanna, so that if you guys are listening to this, one of the plans that we have is, I was, well, one, we've been talking about this for a while. I've talked with Black Rifle Coffee about it, Trevor and all the guys that are really experienced jumpers, and then we talked about it. But the idea would be like like Tom, who's Tom from Eagles and Angels, started the jump program for for bu tan bundle and um, tandem uh, and tethered bundle for RRD as he migrated into the unit. He was but, on target with me the night I got shot. Yeah, he was. Yep. Great dude. Yep. Eagles and Angels is an amazing company, but I, I'm surrounded by. You know, DJ and Cole, former dev guys that were big into standing up a lot of capability. Andy, Tom, I'm like the cherry, and I'm a free fall, advanced free fall jump master um, who ran a detachment. That's what all our job was, and have hundreds of jumps. But comparatively, I'm like the low guy on the totem pole. Even Trevor Thompson, who who is an accomplished uh, base jumper. Yep, as he was well. on the Navy parachute team, their demonstration skydiving team yeah. for years. That's actually how he and I reconnected. He was on the team, and uh, we started jumping back together again. Yeah. It's crazy because I, I look at this and like I'm the private in this in this stack. I look forward to filming you. It's going to be fun. You're, you're <laughs> going to have fun watching me. I'm, I'm like a sheet of plywood. Just take a sheet of plywood and throw it off the back of a C-130. That's me. Most people are. Yeah. You just got to relax. Take a I deep know. breath. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll get back into the groove. What's the worst that could I'm happen? I'm not horrible. Death. It's not a big deal. <laughs> Who cares? Whatever. So my, my thing is like I contacted Everell Stock, which I have a good relationship with Glenn and their marketing team. And I really like the company because their, their origin story is amazing. And I, this is private information because there's a classified piece of land in the middle of National Forest that is a private piece of land surrounded by National Forest. Like GS-14 classified? GS-14. Okay, Only sure. accessible by Glenn's airplane, the owner of uh, Elbrostock. I feel like other airplanes could probably access uh, it. Other could, if you could find <laughs> it, if you could find it. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of Idaho. Yeah. And my thing was like, with Elbrostock bags, our detachments, we started testing and evaluating oh, some yeah. of those bags for sniper operations. So I've jumped a Nebrostock bag with I have many kit. times too. Yeah, it's it's an interesting ride because it, it it just buffers air differently and you can find the balance. But jumping into a hunt, and you know Matt Best uh, gets credit for the the title of it because he's like it's we should do it and we should call it operate the outdoors or or you know it's this idea that we are guys in special operations that are doing normal things with exceptional skill sets. And I think it'd just be fun to do that. I, like, I don't want to do it under, at night. I don't, it doesn't have to be that, but a daylight There's no point land. in doing it. Uh, what state would it be in? Idaho. So I believe, because I've looked at doing this before, I've talked to Evan about it, we'll jump in and we'll have to wait 24 hours because there's restrictions. Yeah. And so why do it in the middle of the night? Yeah. Do it in the daytime, set it up for success because a, obviously a portion of this will be around content and the content's going to be better in the daytime. Yeah. But B, again, analyze, assess, and mitigate risk. Let's not put ourselves into a position 
where the entire program or individuals are at risk. Let's just do it in the daytime. Yeah. You could do a lot of cool shit. Um, after you started talking about this and you brought it up to me, you could do a lot of cool stuff, just again, field craft survival specific. How many people do you have that want to come and you know work with like Kevin Estella and do survival stuff and they drive to the training area and they know at the end of the day you could just like get back in your car and be at 7 11 yeah. and 20. 100%. Let's get four tandem masters and huck some people in a few hundred miles in Dude, the backcountry. And here is your backpack full of survival stuff. Yeah. See you in 300 kilometers. Yeah. Could you really jump a goat? Oh, fuck yeah. I've jumped dogs. Yeah. Um, I've jumped people. I've jumped people with dogs. I've jumped rucksacks that are like the size of this table. Yeah. Yeah. So you got, you got, Tandem qualified while on active duty, right? I held every military free fall qualification there is. That's insane. It's cool to see old dev guys and new dev guys because DJ has some experience with standing up a couple programs. I, I did my, my experience in free fall stuff just because of what we were doing, wasn't specific to doing a lot of that. And um, I wanted to go to tandem bundle. I went to advanced free fall, but not. Uh, uh, Tethered bundle course. Tandem's a wild ride. Yeah, yeah it's MTTB, insane. Military Tandem Tethered Bundle. Military Tandem Bundle, MTB, yeah. TTB, Tandem Tethered. Tandem Tethered. Because there's that Kevlar Tether. That's some scary shit. It can be wild. It's insane. The, I, the worst stories I've ever heard of people falling to their death revolve around the strap of hundreds of pounds of equipment strapped to their chest. I distinctly remember my first bundle jump at the course. You do passenger jumping first, which is really smart because you, you understand the system at that point. Um, also terrifying though too, because you take two people who have never done a tandem and you flip a coin and you're flipping a coin for who's going to ride in the kangaroo pouch. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. And it doesn't really matter because wow. neither of you know what the oh, fuck you're, you're doing. because you're jumping the students. You're jumping yes, each other. the students are jumping each other. Oh, dude, that would be horrible. I mean, an instructor takes you for a jump to kind of show <sighs> you the, like what it's going to be like. Yeah. But at some point there are two dudes strapped to each other who have never done a tandem as the tandem instructor. And they test gravity together. After that, you jump a bundle. And I remember you usually will start getting uh, hooked up and uh, standing up and hooked in at about the six minute and they'll drop the ramp and they get the bundle position and they'll, they'll cheat the bundle out over the back of the aircraft. And I was the first guy to go out of my stick. And there's a camera guy sitting here and they just hold onto the back of the bundle to hold it in place. Mm -hmm. And you give them a verb like, ready, set, go. And somebody's holding your drogue. And there's just these two little handles on the back and you're just holding onto it. And I distinctly remember as I was getting ready to push my first bundle out of the back of a caravan. No, it wasn't a caravan, it was a sky van. Like boxcar. Yeah, thinking, what the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> How did why, I get here? <laughs> why did I ever think that, and the bundle is about the size of a refrigerator and it weighs about the same amount, but distinctly remembering right before the light switched from green to red, like, why? Why did I volunteer to come to this course? This is the stupidest shit that I've ever done in my entire life. And then it goes to green. You're like, man, I can ready, set, go, wee. <laughs> Dude, I've seen, like, I've seen, I've been part of the oh, you know sorry. training experience and seen it, and I'm just like, what? It's violent. It's gnarly, man. Yeah, it's it's gnarly. Um, the goat thing would be, um, I have packing goats. I have three packing goats, but two. I would only jump two of them. We just need a harness. Yeah, we just need a harness, and then probably need to because my alpine goats uh horns are about this big kind of wrap those up you, you would muzzle them i'm assuming or, or blind do goats them. bite no no they're not they're not like dogs it's not jumping like jumping a mouth i don't want to blindfold them i want them to experience it with me <laughs> my goat frank would lose his shit is his name actually frank it's actually frank i'm gonna get him i'm gonna fashion him a nice scarf and like an aviator's 
hat <laughs> with goggles. Like World War II. He'll that, be like, he would look cool. He's he'll a be cool the, looking guy. He'll be the Red Baron of yeah. our jumping operation. That would be awesome. Yeah. Boss is one of them, and Frank is the other. Boss and Frank. I would like to jump Frank. He and I will bond over. Frank's wild. He's, he's the wild one. As long as he doesn't bite, we don't need to muzzle him. No, he doesn't bite. He's not a biter. <laughs> he's a lover. They're both lovers. But that we would use them to pack out the deer yeah. um, for the experience. And I think it would be cool is to do, uh, I'm thinking like a Hilo exfil, like a Black Hawk comes in. Loads everybody up and we come out. I, I can't, I don't want to do the, what is it called? The extraction Hearst. spies and spy, oh yeah, spies, spy system. Spies rigs, yeah. Uh, very, very Navy SEAL ass. That is very Navy SEAL. They did that out I've of the water. Once. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. Until you, they suspend you by your ball sack for like 30 minutes. That was brutal. <laughs> Nobody told me that how that rig was going to work. And then it started to lift and I was like, oh wait, I, I got to adjust. And then it was too late. You know what we should do? We should combine this with... Uh, I would say an Overland exfil. Fuck the Blackhawk. First off, it would be expensive as hell. Do a course where you take like those side-by-sides and you teach a field craft course and at the end of the course they are coming to extract us but they have to do an Overland navigation, camping. That would be fun. Yeah, and that way so that way we're closing the circle. Right? Yeah, You're players, teaching, we need that support. Yeah, so we're teaching them. We're having our experience. They collect us and we make our way out. Overland, I think that's... I mean, do, do you really need another... Ride on the Blackhawk? No, not really. Yeah, it's not worth the cost, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. That's a big cost. Yeah. Wait, wait, how does the, how would we tandem 10 students in? We'd have to get 10 tandem uh, certified guys, or we, would you, you could do, do laps. a couple at a time? You, you could do, do you could get two or three guys um, and two or three rigs, and you could do, you could do lifts. It depends. For the survival thing, why would you jump them all into the same place? You know, why don't you jump three different people? into three different locations. So group of three, group of three, group of three, they have to work together, navigate to link back up. They each get a cadre member there. You know what I mean? So you're you're checking a lot of different boxes along sounds the way. Sounds like an epic course. Yeah. It sounds very expensive, but it sounds epic. I would say somewhere between 50,000 to $1.2 million per slot. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's a wide range, right? Yeah. I'm not gonna, but I mean, think about it. You'd be working on, we should probably do a course on teamwork because there's a teamwork aspect to that and leadership, right? Yeah. There's the navigation, there's the survival, especially as the groups get bigger. You could easily, um, obviously I haven't been through the Q course or the FS selection course, but from what I've seen of it, there's a lot of problem solving yeah. and stuff. You could set those things up throughout. So there's so many lessons that you could tie, and that's, to me, the beauty of physical activity. Mm -hmm. The lessons that you can learn that will last you for the rest of your life through shared suffering and that type of experience. It's the best. It's the best. Yeah. It's what better it than any PowerPoint you're ever gonna sit through. Not yeah. that the lesson can't be learned, but it will be solidified so much better. That's why I don't like doing, I mean, I, I thought about like when we did professional development, like, hey, let's do like a academic block, but it becomes such a, um, uh, a parameter wrapped around a routine of like, here's the bullet points. I don't like that because like, even when we did it yesterday with Jack, it was super organic. And the questions we got, which I think were the most impactful way of how this content is adaptable and, and organic, is the question range was so different than the last time we did it. Yeah, and, well, and we had that, more time with them. And we had more time. Like, I almost felt like, like a lot of time, I was like, damn, okay, we're spending a lot of time, but We could it, have done so six more it. hours. Uh, uh, yeah, easily, yeah. easily. I, we, we, um, we've done, Philcraft has done this course called Resilience. It was 13,500 a slot. We sorted out like in a couple weeks. And it was a five-day experience doing all these type of things with exposure in mind, like exposing people to new things. 
But I want to do that course that you're talking about. It sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, it would be logistically intensive on the back end. It would be instructor heavy. But the, I can't, I mean, if you were to pitch to me, like, hey, design a course that you would want to pay money to go through, that would be the course. Yeah, for sure. You know? People have been asking about the soft experience course, something that makes them, they pay a lot of money, but they have this overall experience where they learn all these segments of the things that we've done, and it would be badass. It would be fun. If people want a soft experience, go to the fucking recruiter. Go get a soft experience. It's true. I mean, you're not going to, I'm sorry, we can give you- You're ruining the commercial for this this class. Let's be honest with the people though. I could could get a a chisel and shave off a fraction of the actual experience and give you some exposure and insight to it. Yeah. If you want the actual experience, go put in the work. You were talking about it yesterday when it came to people posting on the internet and they want to rush to call themselves an expert and they don't want to put in the time, energy, and effort mm. to actually gain the experience and the knowledge so they can speak from a position of not authority, but expertise. Yeah. We can give people an, some type of insight into it, but I, I don't know how to encapsulate a 17-year career into five days. Of course. You know. So yeah. if people want the true experience, last I checked, recruiting offices are open Monday through Friday. I, I, when guys hit me up, when young men hit me up, especially because of this uh, pacification of this coddling of young men, it drives me fucking insane. But I often just like, stop being a pussy, go join the fucking army. Like you're asking me all these questions and you're looking for all this affirmation to do right. Let me just, let me cut, get to the chase. Go fucking do it and stop thinking about doing it. Yeah. Because when we volunteered for service, we took, we were bold because that's was our path. And so many people now are like, but I want to, I want to virtue signal that I was that guy. Like, I just want to post about it. I don't actually want to do it. Yeah. Just go be that guy and shut the fuck up. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Go do the hard work. Be in a bubble where you can't talk about what you do for 20 fucking years and then come out and then try to be us. And that sounds, that sounds rude. I feel bad. Try to be you, not me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Let's, let me ask you this, because we're, we're going to close this out, because you got to catch a plane. Um, Why is it, your watch wrong? Dude, this fucking watch pisses me off. It, did, can you not change the it's time pneumatic. Is it pneumatic? Where it's like pneuma, mm, not pneumatic. Definitely it's, not pneumatic. <laughs> not pneumatic. That's like hydraulic based. It's, it's uh, Movement based? Movement based. But it doesn't move. And you know how people have those, those elitists have road. those little rotate. I had one Elitists. Before. Yeah, I had one before. <laughs> <laughs> But I wish I had my fucking Casio because this is like a, a nice sin. Even though a sin, if you want to hit me up and sponsor me, I, I think sins are the best watch, the German-made watches. The watch is obviously working. It's just an hour slow. It's an hour slow. Why? Um, I like to be an hour behind All right, just check. because I want to be prepared for the hour ahead, if that makes sense, which it doesn't. That's it doesn't, good. but that's a good bumper sticker. It is. It yeah. is. Well, prepared I'm actually, by the way, speaking of good bumper stickers, in production of the shirt, confidently incorrect and always wrong, never in doubt, based off the podcast we did with Heaven. <laughs> That's that. That's badass. Yeah. It's a nice black shirt with a clear, clear hot logo and right on the back. It says, I need to get some of those. Always wrong, never in doubt on the rocker. <laughs> we all know awesome. at least 50 people that deserve that shirt for Christmas and birthday presents. 100%. <laughs> That's fucking badass. I need that. We need that in our gift shop. Um, this Rogan shit. Um, censorship, the Rogan well, thing. Well, I just, I, I, I never, um, I just saw it last night about this His whole second video, because he put up a first one about. The, oh, I didn't see the second one. It was an <laughs> apology, 
For the N-word? That was the second one. Okay. So I guess CNN did the story and they, they did 20 plus captions of him saying that. That's, the, that's what his okay. second video was based around yeah. addressing. And what was it, an apology or something? It was. It was an apology um, and an explanation as to, as to at least who he was. And I'm, I mean, I'm trying to paraphrase. I don't speak for Joe, obviously. I'm, yeah. I am trying to describe what I think it was based off of watching it. I do not speak for Joe. Um, an apology, first and foremost, and an explanation of who he was and what he thought he was doing in that time, because they are all clips from the distant past, which of course doesn't uh, erase the fact that he used that word, but the context with which he was using it, he, it was used in the term of a discussion, not the application towards an individual. Of course. Um, but it's interesting to see people coming after him. Um, most people are not fortunate to know him. He is one of the kindest people uh, and I, I reached out to him yesterday, just like, hey man, I'm just checking in on you. Like, I want to make sure that you're okay. I have almost nothing to offer you, but if you never ever need anything, like I'm a phone call or text away, I love you. Don't change who you are. Because that's my biggest fear, is that it, people are trying to change who he is. And he's a fucking national treasure for not only who he is, but what he does and the yeah. platform that he provides. Um, and I know people will hate hearing that because it's, you know, that misinformation or disinformation it's like it's a fucking podcast it's a podcast it's a conversation yeah, of opinions of opinions and i absolutely think that there has to be a place to at least discuss things that are other than the mainstream narrative because you can find the mainstream narrative everywhere next week i'm getting ready to host a dude on the podcast it'll be out actually after this one by a guy who desired to join the military hi uh I can't say he was necessarily a high-level athlete, but he was an athlete, wanted to join the military. COVID shot was required. Fucking crushed him. Put him into the hospital. And I'm gonna have him on just to discuss his experience. And I don't know how it's gonna be received, and I don't even know what will end up happening with the episode. But I do know that it's gonna piss people off because they're gonna say, oh, you're trying to promote um, you know, anti-vaccine mentality. I'm like, well, I'm fucking a highly vaccinated person. Like, I have no issue. My kids are vaccinated. I don't have any issue with that at all. But I believe in educated decisions. I believe in discussion. And I believe that somebody who had that experience should absolutely have the right to discuss it without being, uh, you know, this attempt to smash them into a corner with people like, oh, don't, don't pay attention to that. It's, uh, I, I hate seeing people are not using the term censorship, but what they're trying to do is censor. And I can't think of a single example of when in the history of human beings censorship worked out well. Yeah. It doesn't happen for, for altruistic reasons. People aren't stupid. Don't get me wrong, there's some stupid fucking people out there. But most people, I think, given information, can make a very educated decision. But you have to give them the information, and it can't just be from one side. So I think he'll be okay. Um, I think if Spotify booted him wherever he lands, guess what? He still has the most popular podcast on the face of the planet. 100%. But this call for censorship is uh, its not the way to go. And it's a, it's a recipe for disaster, if you ask me. Because eventually, the people who are calling for censorship, somebody's going to come for you, too. Yeah. You better stand the fuck by. Uh, when, I, when I hear the word used loosely around this is miss or this is disinformation, that's interesting because that's a new thing now. Because the media could do whatever it wanted to because it was seen as that was always right information. It was fact. It was yeah. a, at least opinion that was... Uh, curated and somehow regulated, but now 
it's like if you have an opinion on a podcast, that could be labeled mis or disinformation, and you could be canceled or, or, or most certainly censored. But it's not like you're publishing that as fact. Well, here's something interesting about that topic specifically. He and I recorded that episode Wednesday of last week. On the episode, he made the comment talking about how information is coming to light where lockdowns are far less effective than initially thought. And there were news articles, again, Joe Rogan spreading misinformation about lockdowns being less effective. This fucking morning, before coming up here to do this, a John Hopkins study comes out that shows exactly what Joe was saying is true. Now, there will be no articles written, oh, hey, by the way, you know, what Joe said about the lockdowns being less effective is actually it's starting to be shown in these studies. And I'm sure there's other studies out there that maybe show it was more effective than others. But holding an opinion doesn't mean you're trying to spread disinformation. Yeah. You know? And then when that, that opinion proves to be true, they just move on to the next. You know, I, I don't understand the end state. I don't understand where it goes. Um, but I think censorship is exactly the opposite of what anybody should be shooting for. Like banning books. Like you, People, in my mind at least, when people say, hey, this book should not be read. It should be banned. What I want to do is go read it and figure out why people say that. I'm not going to read a book and like it's not going to change who I am as a person. You know, it, People are smart enough to take that information on board and either do something with it or realize, like, no, this, is, this is, goes against what I see and what I hear with my own ears and my own eyes. And I, they have to be afforded that opportunity. And I, and I see the desire for some people to strip that. And I think it's just all based in fear. Like, oh my God, if you read this, you may not believe what I believe, so we have to ban it from you. Yeah. Fuck right off. When I hear the administration putting that out, especially talking about a private company censoring a private citizen, that really concerns me. It scares the shit out of me. But I, I also reflect on like all the segments of popular culture growing up in. Like Ice Cube, when I was growing up, was a gangster rapper, and he was literally calling Asians chinks in his songs. Yep. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was mowing the lawn, mowing my aunt's lawn on a cassette, listened to a Walkman and heard that. And I actually remember taking out the tape and throw it in the trash. Cause I was like, like fuck this guy, yeah. right? Now Ice Cube's doing kids movies, right? With, with all these family vacation comedian type stuff. And I'm like, well, that's the society we live in. Because you could say 187 on an undercover cop as a rapper and be immune to it. But if you have a somewhat conflicting opinion on a podcast, then you're a target. I think Joe Rogan's a, a target because he, he's now feared by the narrative that used to have control. I also wonder how those songs would do in the modern day, like if they were released now. Yeah. I'm curious as to, because of the changes in society, I wonder if they would have been as openly accepted as they were back then. Yeah, there's some, there's some uh, who, who was just making that, Bon, bon Gino, um, I often listen to his podcast because I like the guy because he doesn't give a shit and he just says what he thinks. But he was talking about some current hip hop that obviously talks about women in disrespectful ways, mm -hmm. uses the N word repeatedly, repeatedly. And not that that's justification for anybody else to use it, but it's all about context. So in the context, why are we... Why is mainstream media going after Joe Rogan? Well, they're scared because now they're losing control. Because now you think mainstream media, I don't think journalism, I think of entertainment. 
These guys are a corporate entity that are looking to make money, and whatever they do, they will violate every ethical uh, uh, ethic or principle in order to get better ratings, and it's not working. Their business model is upside down. And what I like about Joe's organic approach to just having a conversation is he grew that following from zero to millions of people and, and did nothing but be honest. So for, for them, for the media to say you're dishonest, the more they open their mouth, it's like the asshole in the room who knows he's, he's wrong, but he keeps talking and everybody in the room knows who the fuck he is. He's now that guy. CNN, for example, has identified themselves as being those guys and they have no leg to stand on. A pedophile, a corrupt journalist who was helping his corrupt politician brother, and, and total corruption of going after private citizens. I, I think we're gonna see a huge shift culturally of these corporate entities going upside down. AT&T just procu uh, procured, required CNN. They did? Yeah, they did. And, and that, that acquisition, some people are talking that they might even crush CNN. I, I, I hope they disband CNN hmm. as an entity or, or start something else that's going to be more uh, serious when it comes to news and journalism. We actually need that. I mean, we need, we need the news. I, I, I talked to Evan Hafer about this and got Tulsi, Jocko, you, um, uh, Tim Kennedy, uh, Evan, and me on board this idea of like, let's do our own media. Let's have our own entity. The problem with that is it takes a lot of money. I mean, it takes, it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to do right. But if we could do that to insulate, not an echo chamber of the right wing voice, but of moderate Americans, of right journalism, right news, right media, and then a, an opinion that's not gonna be censored or suppressed, we gotta fucking do that. And I hope, I, I don't know if this is ever gonna happen, but as Joe deals with these issues with uh, corporate media entities that are combating uh, over, uh, over who's making the most money. Um, I'm not sure if Spotify was the best move for him, but he made the move. Maybe there is a path for Joe with the network that he has to start his own entity, to, to, to work on giving other people, like even me and you, hmm. as we grow in scale, we're not a threat. I, your, your, your podcast is more popular than mine, but you're not a threat to mainstream. When you become a threat because you have so many people that you've accumulated in the market, then all of a sudden corporations want to go after you. If you're protected and insulated to be able to have that voice without threat of censorship, it opens up the conversation more. And that's what we need more of. I mean, yeah. we need more of that. I agree. It's like, I feel like we're living in like when we grew up, it was like um, the radical entity going after the book because the book needed to be censored because it was too risque. It's like, what the fuck? We're talking about removing books out of libraries because we're afraid of what it says in the book? Yeah. Like, that's an option. You don't want to pick up the fucking book? You don't want your kid to read it? Don't fucking read it. Don't listen to Joe Rogan's podcast if it offends you so much. And now you got fucking nerds at CNN investigating every word dating back 30 fucking years. It's like, oh my God. Well, the worry is that it'll never stop. I mean... I think the reason that Joe put the apology up is he legitimately is an empathetic person. And he 100%. Cares. Those are legit. But when, but when he doesn't get canceled because of that clip that they put together, they will look for something else. 100%. And then something else. It's a campaign. And, and I, don't know, I don't know the move there. Do you put your head down and just keep working? Do you have to make an apology to every 
single issue that like, you know what I mean? Like, fuck, I don't, I don't know which one of those paths is the right one. Yeah. I heard a lot of, I, well, I heard, I, I saw a lot of, um, content this morning on people saying the biggest mistake Joe Rogan made was apologizing. He apologized because he cares. It, it is. It, it's because he genuinely cares. Yeah. But here's the problem with that. Just like you stated, if it's a deliberate campaign, he'll be apologizing every day because yeah. they're going to find dirt. We all have dirt. And, it, and it's funny because the only way, me and Evan have talked about this, the only way to tactfully um, make effective change is wage war. If you want to campaign against me, I'll campaign against you. And I'll look for the errors in, in, in your game and we'll create a deliberate process to go after you. Because the alternative is they're just going to accumulate millions of dollars to put in a pile uh, as a funding resource to just go after Joe. And I'm like, and I, and, and I, I don't know Joe personally, uh, you do, but when I look at the kind of person that I perceive Joe to be, he doesn't want to deal with that shit. Yeah. He wants to live a happy life. He wants to hunt, spend time with his family, and, and talk, uh, talk with experts in different fields because he's naturally curious. What happens to that person when they're getting berated, getting smashed every fucking day, even getting the texts and the phone calls. What happens to them when they're like, you know what, I don't need this, fuck yourself. Well, what happens is society loses because we lose, like you said, a national treasure that's able to curate that conversation, which we should be fucking happy. Agreed. On that note, I gotta roll. You don't have to fucking roll. I do. We're, 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 roll, we're, we're gonna take, we're gonna drink three more of these <laughs> and do another 12 fucking hours. Um, well, you know where I live, motherfucker. You can come up true. anytime. I that's also true. know where you I'll live. I'll jump into your house. Psych, I'm not doing that shit. You I'm could. Fly a plane. Just land in the water, be safer. Do army guys know how to swim? No. That's why I would never get <laughs> in a Navy SEAL. Um, are you just, do you have to do some kind of like, you don't do ads or nothing anymore? Just for black rifle. Oh, sweet. Yeah. They're simple. Like, if you don't want to drink coffee that doesn't suck dick, yeah. drink black rifle coffee. Yeah. Yeah, go drink Starbucks, Today, communist. Today's guest. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. So this is the uh, first episode of the Cleared Philcraft Hot Survival Podcast. It makes sense to me. It does make sense. It does. We should, I'm just going to take all your podcasts and use them on my channel. I'll so just I don't send have you the record. file. Yeah, I'll just send you guys the file. It's perfect. <laughs> all right, man. Cool. Thanks. All right, brother.